0: The ground we stand on accounts for only 30% of the Earth's surface. So what about the rest? Well, that other 70% is our world ocean, which to many of us land dwellers may seem like a foreign concept. An intangible body of water largely separated from our day-to-day lives. But in reality, the ocean is the one common link that connects us all. The food we eat, the air we breathe, the storms we ride, and the economies we build are all dependent on our world ocean. On this podcast, we will dive into emerging markets, innovative technology, and conservation efforts to shed light on the ocean. The Other 70% that enables us to have a footprint, a home, and a life on Earth. The Other 70% is brought to you by Nortech, As ocean enthusiasts, researchers, and technologists, We are on a mission to make an impact through innovation, exploration, and activism above and below the surface. Help keep us exploring by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice. Hello to everyone out there listening, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Other 70%. I'm your host, Nevin DeParlo, and today we will be hearing from the man behind Kelly Slater's perfect wave. CTO of KS Waveco Adam Fincham. When world champion surfer Kelly Slater dreamed up the idea of creating the perfect wave in a man-made pool, the passion project led him to Fincham, a professor at the University of Southern California. While Fincham was not an avid surfer, and in fact had never heard of Kelly Slater at the time, years of research in turbulence and fluid dynamics prepared Fincham to take on the engineering feat of a lifetime. Nearly a decade after Slater's initial proposition, the perfect wave was born into existence at the so-called surf ranch in Lemoore, California. In this episode, Fincham talks about his varied and impressive road in academia that led him to connecting with Slater, the process of bringing the wave from dream to reality, and how the wave pool could fit into the sport of surfing in the future. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode with Adam. Well, Adam, welcome to the Other Seventy Percent. Great to have you on. Well, you know, thanks, thanks
1: for having me, uh, Navin, and uh, it's uh, uh, yeah, a pleasure to be here. So um, yeah,
0: it's probably going to be a lot of fun. We're, we're looking forward to it, and this will be a good time. Um, I guess to start things off, Adam, I. Just want to get a little bit of background on you and how you ultimately ended up getting involved in in wave pool design. Um, Was surfing always a part of your life or was it something that just sort of came into your life later on from a a more technological standpoint and opportunity to develop something pretty cool with with the wave pool side of things?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting uh, aspect there. Um, I never really surfed um, on a surfboard uh, until college uh, when I came to California. Um, But prior to that, I had been quite an avid skateboarder. So I was interested in board sports, I could say. You know, it was interesting to me. You know, maybe maybe looked at some surfer magazines back in the day because they used to be a crossover between surfing and skateboarding back in the 70s. It was sort of a um, kind of went together. Uh, back in Jamaica, we didn't really have any active surfing. There were some waves in some little areas, and there's a small little group of people who might have gone out and surfed every now and again. But uh, definitely, um, through skateboarding, I was interested in surfing coming to california was a big thing you know surfing was all around and at uh, some point in college there i uh, i got a board from somebody and a, a wetsuit it's kind of cold and gave a, gave it a go a few times uh, went out with uh, one of my colleagues uh, jeffrey spedding and uh, yeah he took me out a few times in malibu and you know I, I was i was naturally okay at it because i knew how to balance on the board and you know i was kind of young and sufficiently athletic to I a good swimmer. I've always been a very strong swimmer. I grew up in the ocean in boats and stuff. So I was uh, interested in it. Um, but it never was something where I would have ever called myself a surfer. Certainly not. You know, a surfer is someone who gets up at five in the morning and goes out every day. when they yeah. swim. You know, That was not me. You know, I'd be, the, what do you call it? The the weekend surfer, occasionally go out, you know, every now and the weekend, again.
0: The weekend warrior.
1: Yeah, yeah, it would just be like that.
0: There you go. No, that's great. I mean, I think everyone who has an affinity for the water sort of has different stories of how they they first got in. So I think, I think that's interesting. I mean, personally, um, you know, I, I grew up in Vermont. I was a skateboarder, snowboarder, and ultimately got into surfing and kiteboarding and, and everything as well. And so it's, it's funny how all those board sports worlds collide. And then for you, it really collided, I guess, because in college, you were also, what were you studying at the time? And you, you were... I was
1: in uh, aerospace engineering department. Okay. So mainly working on turbulent flows, uh, turbulent boundary layers. Then later on, uh, so a lot of that was wind tunnel work in the beginning. Yeah. In the very beginning, it was uh, you know, hot wire probes inside of wind tunnels and things like that. A little bit of um, computing work back in the day. In fact, when I was uh, 1985, uh, we were still using reel-to-reel tapes on uh, PDP-1155 computers, you know, that you program without a keyboard you had all these buttons and you had to know which order to press them to boot the machine and and load your program off of giant uh, you know i don't know 12 inch diameter tapes so it was a lot of uh exposure to computing and automation and data acquisition mm-hmm. uh, which was mainly when i moved from wind tunnels into uh, water uh, we had a, a water channel at the university there. And uh, so the water channel was akin to a wind tunnel it was a recirculating channel. Uh, and uh, we also had the ability in the test section to add a towing device. So you could have a, a towing object also in a background flow. And it was a low turbulence facility, again, looking at boundary layers, turbulence and things like that. Um,
0: and, uh, what uh, so? I guess to backtrack, you know, you you were growing up in Jamaica. You were skateboarding. You came to to California for for school. You're you're sort of studying aerospace engineering and and started to surf a little bit. You transitioned into I guess the uh, the water based uh, yeah. physics portion of of your studies. And wh- where did it sort of go from there? I mean, like. In terms of how it then transitioned from you were studying aerospace engineering, you started to work in more of a a, a, a hydrodynamic space. Right, right. Where did it sort of go from there? What was the next part of the transition? It was still on turbulence at that
1: point. And I think the, the transition came when I moved from looking at turbulent boundary layers, which were done, you know, either in the wind tunnel or in the water channel to um, uh, work with uh, my mentor, Tony Maxworthy, the late Tony Maxworthy, who was in geophysical fluid dynamics. So he was sort of more into stratified and rotating flows that mimic the ocean and the atmosphere or other planetary flows. And he had another laboratory deep down in the basement, where he had a large tank, which was set up to um, model uh, what some people at the time called two-dimensional turbulence through the aid of uh, salt stratification. So I decided that that seemed pretty cool to work in that world. And in what we called the GFD lab back then, we had uh, other students and postdocs working on you know, we had a rotating tank. We had other, we had several rotating tanks that, you know, you get the Coriolis force. So now you're really simulating vortices that you might find in the ocean and the atmosphere. And uh, we had um, several projects going on there. And it was an interesting group of uh, people who worked there that uh, kind of stimulated my interest more in, rather than working on uh, just on turbulence, for, for engineering applications, it seemed was more interesting to work on uh, turbulence as it related to the to nature and the geophysical environment uh, that we live in, and so that was sort of a transition there from uh, more engineering applications to more um, what I call natural applications of understanding the the planet planetary flows.
0: So I guess time frame wise, that's when. When was that that you sort of started? To well, that
1: would have been in nineteen ninety when I made that transition. Okay, yeah.
0: and then so since then, I mean, obviously, it then took a number of years before you got involved on the the wave pool side of things. And now. yeah, I was still not oh. doing
1: wave pool because then I spent about four or five years doing that for my PhD, which was in ninety four. Yeah. So and at that point, I still had not been exposed in any significant way. I'd taken wave theory in graduate school, but never really done any experimental work or small little project on a technique using, um, uh, it was a visualization technique, a sort of shadow graphy technique to measure wave crests that one of my colleagues was working on. I was exposed briefly to that, but the experiments were done at another university and we were more analyzing the data. So I still wasn't, you know, having my hands wet with waves right. even at that point. And so then it was only when I went after my PhD to, to uh, work in France, where I stayed for about 10 years in Grenoble at the, the Grand Plaque on Coriolis, which was a big, the largest rotating tank in the world, again, pursuing this stratified and rotating flows where the stratification, which we use salt for, sort of mimics uh, the change in you know temperature and pressure of the ocean as you go down or the atmosphere as you go up. So you get this two-dimensionalization of all of the flows where they're they're flat, you know, the, the vortices are sort of like pancakes. We call them pancake vortices as a terminology. And so it was interesting to work in this Coriolis tank where... The largest one in the world, you could do it, the more you could get closer with the physics to the reality of the ocean and the atmosphere, so it made sense. And uh, it was during that time, uh, between 94 and 2000 and so, when uh, was exposed through this program of the European Union called Hydrolab. So, Hydrolab was a program where each country in Europe might have several, you know, this is when Europe was all coming together, and, uh, and I remember when I went there, I was paid in francs, and then later got paid in euros, so it was through the transition, and uh, the program was designed for specific hydromechanical, large-scale hydromechanical infrastructure, like the large rotating tank that I was working on, and the Coriolis tank is quite impressive, you know, it's about uh, 13, 14 meters in diameter and uh, weighs, uh, you know, several hundred tons, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's a, a serious thing and it rotates, can make a full rev- revolution in about 20 seconds quite easily. And uh, anyway, the, the point there was that we were part of this HydroLab program that we got into. The HydroLab program allowed us to share resources. So if, for example, a researcher in Italy wanted to come and use this large rotating tank, he'd be paid by the European Union to sponsor the travel and the fees and so on. Because in Italy, they didn't have one of these tanks, but maybe in Italy or Spain or somewhere else, they have a wave flume that we don't have. And if we, some researchers from France wanted to go to that country and use their large wave flume, uh, they would be great. So it's sort of an exchange program that was sort of meant to uh, build collaboration on the science. He generally needed three partners for a project. And we used to joke that the bigger the triangle, the bigger the money. So you kind of wanted to have a guy from Portugal working with a guy in Estonia with another guy in, in Athens. And that'd be a pretty big triangle in Europe and kind of bring all those people together was considered a good thing. Versus working with your next door neighbor wasn't considered to be as inviting for what the union wanted. They wanted to encourage uh, people to mix uh, throughout the whole, all of Europe. But the the point of this is that that program involved, uh, most of the countries had large wave flumes. So being part of the program um, and developing some of the instrumentation for the program, because by then I was a a specialist in um, what we call DPIV, Digital Particle Imaging Velocimetry. Which is uh, used to be called PIV, Particle Imaging Velocimetry, but it's a way of getting uh, full-field uh, two-component velocity data by seeding the flow with uh, air-water with little particles, and then firing laser sheets through and capturing s- sequential images, and correlating them spatially to obtain the full velocity field over a plane. Um, and nowadays, uh, through a volume, you know, we have 3D PIV now uh, with three components in in a volume. Uh, which I also developed a technique for. But uh, back then, it was uh, a big thing, so I would try to implement, for example, in the large uh, limb wave flume in Barcelona, uh, these uh, laser imaging techniques to improve the capabilities of these giant um, hydraulic machines. And this was sort of considered necessary at the time because everyone was saying, well, the computer is going to take over. We don't need to build any more big wave tanks. We can do everything on the computer. And there was some thought, my thought was, well, why don't we modernize the measurement capabilities within the large tanks? That way they'd be more useful and provide data more akin to the type of data you get from a computer model, allowing more synergy between
0: the two methods. Hmm. That, That was my exposure to so wave. that was when the wave, the wave exposure first began. So this gets your feet wet with 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 wave pools. You've had a really long road of academic academic research and, And uh, then, you know, postdoc research that has sort of ultimately evolved into the marine space. And then I guess at the same time, you know, this is starting to probably approach like the mid-2000s, 2010. And, you know, Kelly Slater, who, to those of you who don't know, is, you know, the the most dominant competitive surfer, probably just the best surfer ever to live. Um, And Kelly's won probably, yeah, he's won probably what, like, 10 world titles at that point
1: world titles now now he's got
0: 11 and and so at this point when adam still doesn't know who he is he's i guess probably you know eight nine ten deep at that point and yeah he's on the world 70 he was about seven or eight at that time yeah okay so so he uh he is you know the most dominant surfer out there he has obviously done well for himself and he's 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 on the world surf league or the WSL tour, which is sort of the championship level tour equivalent to like the PGA tour. If you're, if you're familiar with golfing and world, all the best surfers traveling around the world. And um, you know, in general, just to give people some context, if you're not a surfer, the, the world surf league is comprised of a number of stops that are all on different types of waves. Um, and obviously these are naturally occurring waves from, from swell in the ocean and a big part of the competitive piece is is really the ability to adapt to the ocean's conditions, and it's not going to be the same, uh, probably ever exactly repeatable wave from one set to another. So, it's it's one a piece of like surfing skill to win, but also two really a a piece of like ocean knowledge, familiarity with waves, and how to line yourself up in the right spot and how to capitalize on the sections of the waves. Um, We could go on about that for a long time. But at this point, I guess, Adam, can you go into a little bit of like how you and Kelly, like you from this really academic lens, you were once a weekend warrior surfer uh, to Kelly, who's the best surfer to ever live, winning world titles, you know, multiple years in a row how do your worlds collide? I mean, tell, tell us that story a little bit and then when, yeah. what sort of became of it? Because it's really amazing that you guys intersected.
1: It, it, it was kind of interesting and a little bit of, you know, everything in life is you, you never know quite why it happens. There's always reasons. And um, so at this point, I had sort of transitioned back to California. I'm working at a USC uh, doing these uh, sonic bo- ocean sonic boom experiments and also working. I've always been a little bit interdisciplinary and tried to keep my connections with the marine biology section of, um, that we have there in, uh, at USC. Um, so was doing some little projects with plankton motion and plankton and turbulence, and, and so I had some little plankton tanks going or using lasers again to measure the motion of the plankton and the motion of the turbulence and look at that competition. And so would be regularly talking with uh, my um, marine biology and oceanography colleagues that we had uh, there. And someone one day mentioned uh, something about a, uh, a wave thing that someone had approached them and I wasn't too sure. And someone, I got an email from a guy named Larry Redekop who kind of said uh, I don't know what he said, but either way, uh, Larry had been a you know big uh, big guy in the department, department chair for many years and and forth. And Larry also was very interested in oceanographic type applications of of aerospace engineering, fluid mechanics, and he had uh, been asked uh, about uh, his opinion on this wave project, which is a bit elusive. So I went to talk to Larry and said, "Oh yeah, look." Um, uh, he uh, talked to a guy named Tony Michaels, who who was a professor there in, in marine biology. And they had been working. Tony had been, in, I think, in charge of a working with the Wrigley Foundation uh, Oceanographic Institute on Catalina Island that um, that is owned by uh, USC, where we have a sort of marine biology institute on the island. They take students over there. the dorms over there. Um, So, one of the donors to this program was a guy named Bob McKnight, who was the CEO of Quicksilver. At the time, Kelly was sponsored by Quicksilver. So, that was his main sponsor. And uh, so, and this was before the WSL. Back then, it was called the ASP. Right. And uh, so, either way, uh, so Bob had been obviously talking with Kelly, who Kelly had this idea of trying to make this infinite endless, uh, artificial wave that he was been dreaming about. And so Bob had, uh, reached out to his friends on Wrigley on Catalina Island, who were, were you know, Tony Michaels and the marine biology guys. And they kind of, uh, from what I understand, kind of said, oh, well, you know, we don't really, you know, we do, we know about fish and plankton. <laughs> and, and, oh, geez, you know, we're not so sure about how to make a wave for you, <laughs> you know? Um, but we have some friends over in engineering who, uh, who might be able to help, you know, and, you know, and, and so they, they sort of, uh, contacted us, uh, contacted Larry Redekop who thought that I might be the right guy to, to do this. And, um, sort of said, Oh, one you should talk to, you should talk to me. So he pointed, you know, they pointed at uh, Wrigley who pointed at Tony who pointed back at the marine biology. And I'd done some stuff with Tony. He pointed at Larry and then Larry pointed at me. <laughs> and so yeah, that's how it went. And, you know, and, and, uh, Marine guys, well, they're happy to uh, contribute to anything relating to water quality and some other things, but when it comes to actually making the wave, it's an engineering feat. It's it's not a biological feat, you know, and, right. and, and uh, it's an oceanographic feat if you're a physical oceanographer. Unfortunately, USC at the time did not have a physical oceanography department, as say, it had a, used to have a couple oceanographers, Tommy Dickey and live by Washburn in the geology department, but there was no oceanography department for physical oceanography. All of our oceanographic work was more biological sciences, mm. pretty much. And any ocean, any physical oceanography was done out of aerospace engineering. So that was sort wow. of how we got connected. And then Kelly came and I didn't, at this point I still hadn't heard the name yet, or maybe <laughs> I had the name, but I didn't recognize it or know it. I just knew there was some project about making a wave. and. Next thing I know, uh, Kelly comes over to see me in the lab and he wants to discuss the wave and he, he sort of explains, uh, I'd been told a little bit about it before he showed up, at least that that he wanted this annular ring, endless wave to run in a circle forever and ever. And uh, yeah, and it sounded kind of cool. So yeah, and so we had a few conversations. Yeah, he was passionate about it. Um, you could tell uh, right away that he kind of, you know, he knew what he wanted. That's for sure, and that's the first part of any problem, right? If you don't know what you're trying to get, you're probably not going to get it. Sure. And uh, yeah, he went away. Then I did some googling and research on other technologies out there and who he was and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that was kind of interesting and and that was was exciting because it was super challenging. I was like, what he wanted. It was pretty clear. He just he just didn't want a wave. I mean, he wanted. B wave. He wanted the perfect wave.
0: (laughs) It's it's an amazing story because like when you when you talk to a surfer, I mean like I I surf like recreationally. I, I love like getting in the water. And and when you are talking to the best surfer to ever live, I mean Kelly's literally surfed everywhere in the world. He has chased the best, like naturally occurring waves everywhere on the planet. And I mean, he has experience in probably more than anyone else ever in the ocean in terms of like competitive, uh, and, and also free surfing, the free surfing world. And, you know, he comes to you and he's like, well, I've already surfed all the perfect waves of the world, but like, I want something, I want something that's even better. And for people yeah. who don't surf, like if you're just a, you know, a Joe Schmo, you know, kook out there, like if you get a 10 to 30 second ride, you're pretty stoked. Like that's, that's a pretty fun wave like beyond that like you, you know, there are places in the world where you can surf and like get barreled for more than you know 30 seconds or a minute but it's hard to it, it's hard to come upon those days and those waves when the conditions yeah. line up and so i think for kelly like the way that i sort of understand it is that his goal was to basically at the push of a button be able to simulate a a perfect like long minute long wave or more initially, I guess was his dream, um, that simulates like all types of conditions. It's powerful. You can get barreled, which is when you get tucked under the lip of the wave. It's like sort of the, the ultimate feat when you're surfing, like every surfer chases that. And then also have, uh, performance sections where you can do these big airs and and tricks uh, on the wave. Right. So like, what, what was that like when he framed that to you? Like, when he described what he wanted out of the wave initially, what did, he, what did he say?
1: Well, initially, he wanted the barrel. And all of these other things you just talked about, which is obviously what, you know, we eventually kind of put together. And But in the very beginning, it was all about the barrel. It was yeah. like yeah. the most important thing probably to most surfers is getting barrel. I mean, it's kind of like the... I, I don't know. It's the best. I, I mean, it's not, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of strange because uh, you know, when you're in the barrel, you know, you're, you're not even visible <laughs> if you're really, yeah. Yeah. no one can see you. Judges don't know what's going on, you know, but, but the point is getting barreled is is sort of the ultimate experience in surfing. And, and he wanted a wave. His basic thing was he wanted a wave that you could get properly barreled in. Now he yeah. didn't come and say, I want a six foot, this, that, you know, no, he just said, I want a wave, you can get barreling. So I looked at him and, okay, I got to make a wave that this guy can fit inside the barrel. (laughs) That was kind of it. And he wanted it to be endless, not a minute long, he wanted it to be infinitely long. So this wave in his mind was in this donut shaped tank and the wave would just keep going around the donut forever and ever and ever until you got too tired to, to surf it anymore. So that was sort of the very beginning, and that's that was what the the whole energy was. Let's make the barrel. Now there was talk about some other things, but that was secondary because people already had artificial waves, you know, like at Disneyland and so on that that were existing, you know, and but they didn't barrel, but they could still ride them. You know, so consider that that wouldn't be too hard, but to make a barrel, and the barrel had to be of the correct shape, size, thickness of the lip that's throwing over and the slope and curvature of the surface had to be such that it was surfable. You know, it had to be this particularities about the barrel that make it possible to to get inside the tube and and to, to find an edge and hold in there. So it, that was a hard part for me to understand because I'd never been really barreled in my life, maybe for a second before the wave just pummeled me. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, so I didn't really know what it was like to actually ride a barrel. Everyone's you know. been there. Yeah. I, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I had to learn what that meant and what he really wanted. And, and that was a bit of a back and forth to to kind of comprehend what he was really looking for.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. I mean that's it's it's really interesting to see how it ultimately developed and I'm sure there was many different designs and iterations obviously that that followed. I mean, it's just it's cool to to hear his the the initial idea and in how it was communicated to you from the best surfer to ever live and still one of the best surfers in the world. Um, you know, in his pursuit to literally just at the push of a button basically like in his backyard have the ability to ride a, a perfect wave like even though he has you know ridden perfect waves all around the world his whole life so i think that's that's amazing and so from there right he you guys kind of kick off this partnership he frames the idea it's this huge idea you're like excited about it's a huge challenge you don't even know if it's probably that doable at this point i would assume that's it's right. like, yeah. is this even possible yeah um What what happens next? Like, where do you what? Well, then I reach out to my
1: network. I bring in all the smart guys I know from academia who know much more about waves than me, and I put them all in the room together with Kelly, and then we just go over it. Kelly stands up there on the whiteboard, explains to the whole group of smart people, "Hey, this is kind of what he wants," and and I chime in and say, "Yeah, this is what we thought about," and uh, I've done some little research. I have some ideas that maybe we could do it like this and uh, we all talk it over and, you know, and even in the room, uh, there was not a full agreement that it was uh, actually possible there were, there were, at least by the methods that we had proposed, there were some skeptical that maybe the wave would not be properly surfable because of a sort of translation of the coordinate system to what we were theorizing, you know, versus what would be in reality in the ocean In other words, there was questions about would this, "quotes" artificial wave actually mimic correctly a real wave in the ocean or would it be something totally different, which may be or may not be better or worse. But so that was sort of a little bit of a thing there just to convince ourselves that, yeah, this would mimic exactly the type of wave that occurs in the ocean in the most perfect conditions. We have to be sure of that. Otherwise, you could develop a wave that might look like it's the correct thing, but wouldn't actually be surfable.
0: Right. From the time that you meet Kelly and you get this roundtable in the room with the the other scientists, your colleagues, your network and Kelly, um, how many years is it then to the first surfable prototype?
1: Oh, wow. So that would have been... When we met Kelly, 2006, by 2007, I'm sure we had the round table. Um, and uh, I'd have to look back at the dates, might've even been the same year. The round table from the first meeting to the round table was probably just a few months to do some little background research and maybe just kind of get some ideas going. I think we ran some tests in a, a water channel just to kind of see if our ideas were, were valid. And then, uh, yeah, so let's say 2000, and, let's call it 2007 to where we're really kicking off. You know, we've kind of got an idea. We're going to start, we're going to start work on this. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. would have to get some money from some of his partners or something to give to the university to kind of say, hey, guys, can you, uh, can you put some time into this? So 2007, we kick it off. Uh, and our wave was, uh, was it December 2015 that we debuted the wave? So what is that? So, you know, it's almost, it's almost 10 years.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, years, I remember
1: nine years, solid, uh, nine years
0: solid. Yeah, and I remember, I, like, crystal clear and it was i remember how uh, impressed i was of how how much of a secret this was kept as well i mean like it was totally under wraps no one knew about it i mean i was young at the time but like i was still enamored with surfing and like the asp wsl like i loved following all the events and like personally i had not heard anything about it i mean i was up in vermont but i still loved surfing and was pretty tied into the the channels and uh you know when I saw that video for the first time, I remember just like being so blown away by the fact that that was created in a wave pool. Like you, you think back to your experiences at like a water park as a, a little kid where yeah. you're in like a sloppy wave pool of everyone's on, yeah. buggy. like they're just crumbling. It looks like windswell. It's like crumbling waves that, that aren't, really rideable and then you you fast forward to 2015 this video gets released of kelly just like so stoked when he sees the first wave being cut pumped out i'm sure you were there obviously and and uh you know you see him ride like a minute long clean face with two barrel sections and it's just like it was it was like i couldn't even believe it was real it was amazing i'm sure that millions of other surfers felt the same way and like in that moment it's pretty amazing to think that like you, you literally—I mean—that changed the trajectory of like the future of surfing and the accessibility of surfing. Like right from that second that video came out, which is just what like does that feel pretty cool to have p- played like a key role? Yeah, in that? I
1: mean, it, it's definitely a good thing that I—I I think you're right there that the momentum towards artificial waves has uh, really improved, and that video probably helped that and. And uh, as we know now, there's uh, multiple companies around the world implementing and constructing uh, waves that are um, completely rideable and have barrels on them. And, and uh, yeah, so it, it probably played a good part in that in making people realize, hey, you can do this and have it barrel, you know, you can, you can actually do this. It's, it's not, you know, that hard. And, and I think, uh, yeah, we contributed a bit to that momentum for sure.
0: Definitely. I mean, I remember thinking media I, mean, I was like, this is going to change the game. Like it doesn't, it it does not replace surfing in the ocean by any means or competing in the ocean because the, the, the whole other element that I personally enjoy and I you know that professional surfers definitely enjoy is having the ability to, you know, compete in, um, changing conditions because that's a huge piece of the competitive landscape mm-hmm. the surfing landscape but it just opens up a new door I mean I think it, it just gives more people the ability to get in the water to be familiar with surfing it grows the sport and what grows the sport is is good for the sport in my opinion and good for the ocean overall so I, I think it's just a it, it, it wasn't a substitute but it it changed the game certainly
1: yeah, and, and we saw it evolve, you know, we, in the surf ranch, it's what we call the, the location in Lemoore where we built the, this first wave. Um, we built it. We proved that it would work as a prototype. We tore it apart. We rebuilt the reef, make it different, make it barrel differently. We tore that apart again second time and then rebuilt everything in a bit more uh, seriously and uh, still, still prototypish, but a bit more uh, um, robust that uh, changed, you know, what we have now, as you can see from the more recent videos, is it no longer is just one complete barrel. We found that surfers, when you talk to the competitive wise and they want to, they want to experience some open face and some barrel, you know, so what we have now, and then they want an air section. So, so right now the wave has, uh, you know, three or four different sections that are distinctively different based on the bathymetry and the profile of the of the hydrofoil we use to generate the wave but it's it's evolved already you know in that you know okay the barrel was great but what do people really want well okay they can only get so much barrel which is amazing but they still want a piece of barrel but they don't mind a big face to carve up
0: yeah sure and so i guess just to to provide some more context like you know you said you spoke a moment ago about the reef and bathymetry and like there's a, obviously a lot of different components that went into designing the wave and optimizing the wave. And when you look at waves around the world, um, you know there are thousands of different waves that have different shapes, different sizes, they barrel, they might be long rolling open faces for people to just do huge carves on or big airs. And that all really comes down to the bathymetry and the shape of the, the bottom contours at that spot, right? Like the shape of the reef is what ultimately dictates what the wave looks like in the shape of the wave. So for you guys, w- did you sort of study a lot of the, the, you know, like pipeline, some of the key surf breaks, lower trestles around the world and what that bathymetry looked like? And then you tried to model it into a pool or did you just sort of like experiment mm-hmm. in the lab and come up with that on your own?
1: Well, we, we did look at any bathymetry we could get from a known break, we would look at it. And what we found was that it was difficult to try to mimic this uh, ocean bathymetry simply because in the ocean, the wave has a lot more room to propagate while in a man-made um, wave pool, you limited limit it in the, in the size. So you didn't really have the type of space to allow the wave to shoal and break in the same manner as it does. But we we were able to learn some features of what helps to like pipe, for example. But to actual mimic that exact bathymetry, it it wouldn't be practical. This wouldn't be practical from an engineering point of view. And so we, we were inspired by that but we ended up having to do our own experimentation. Um, in our, we built a fifteen-to-one scale model prototype. In uh, you know, after we left the university, we started the company. We rented a warehouse in uh, Culver City and built the prototype model. Sort of by two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, we were working heavily in the prototype, um, and so it was experimentation. We had uh, our master Hello. technician, you know, Ken Lucas. He could. Uh, we'd build all these reefs out of wood and acrylic and, and try a different reef. You know, every, every week we'd be tearing it apart. Let's try a different shape here. And we're really doing uh, lab measurements, making velocity measurements and wave height measurements in the lab. By this time it was a 15 to one. So the wave was about six inches high. So uh, we you were know, making six inch waves that we thought we could scale to the, to the full size. And um, that was a bit of, um, of the fun time, you know, the real lab research. And then later we started to bring in the computing and started to do uh, some computational fluid mechanics uh, to simulate other aspects that we couldn't quite get from the lab measurements. But we were, we were then making a consistent, very good six inch wave in the lab that we believe we could scale. Now we had to convince, uh, our partners in the company and other people, investors, that what that our little six inch wave would work if you made it at six feet, you know? And, and that was kind of the, the leap of faith that uh, they had enough confidence in us that they were willing to finance the building of the prototype, which, you know, you, it's a big machine and it's expensive and it's, you know, millions of dollars. So that was a, that was a big, big moment when we started construction there in 2013.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, it's uh, it's it's amazing. I mean, the fact that you were able to uh, instill enough trust in your your models and your your scale prototypes to say, all right, let's go let's go dig the hole and and build the real reef and and design the hydrofoil and the, that mechanism to actually generate the wave. And I mean, it's it's obviously worked out great. So you guys killed it. Um, and yeah, what it do you went think? From I mean,
1: science project to an engineering feat. So there was yeah. that transition where he's all science. He's in the labs, prototypes, scale modeling, computing, you know, measurements and things. And then it, then it turns from there into now it's engineering of feet of how do you actually build this? If you, now you think you know what you want to build, you still got to build it.
0: Right, serial number one, uh, two. Good uh, engineer,
1: our chief engineer Jeff Bennett, and he uh, you know he was instrumental in getting uh, getting it built, getting it built on on time and. A little over budget.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's how it always is, right? You couldn't assume serial number one was going to be under budget. Um, and so like from your perspective, I mean, being so deeply involved on the technical side with the the experimentation, ultimately the build, the implementation, seeing that first wave get ridden in 2015, all the way through to actually hosting a WSL event at, at the ranch, which was really cool. I mean, that, that was awesome. I know that that'll probably be a thing in the future as well when, when we yeah, get back. Yeah, they're, they're going to have another WSL event this year. Great, yeah. And so like, where do you think from your perspective, um, Maybe not directly involved with the, the the WSL tour, but like in general for the future of surfing, what what do you think wave pools are, are gonna look like down the line, and and how does that influence both recreational surfing and also you know the world tour and like the highest level of competitive surfing, whether it be um, you know on the WSL or in the Olympics.
1: Yeah, well, Nevin, that's a good
0: question
1: there because I think everybody would love to know the answer. Everyone in the industry, <laughs> you know I mean? That's kind of the, the thing. So there's two, two paths here that, that I think both paths have to be occupied. One is that it's a fun thing to do. A lot of people would love to try surfing. They don't live near the ocean, for example, or they're just afraid of sharks or for a variety of reasons. And here you have the possibility to stoke out, you know, thousands of people, if you can build a wave pool, which has sufficient throughput. It's sort of like your, imagine a Waikiki, you know, where you have, you know, hundreds of surfers just out there on soft tops banging into each other, and they're all having <laughs> their lives, right? So there's a whole avenue for that, which is, that's great. You know, and that's, that's gonna be a big part of this, is, is providing that experience to a large number of people. Um, now there are surfers who say that's not good because now these amateurs, artificial wave guys are now going to want to go in the ocean and fill up the lineup. And so there's a whole group of people who don't like it for that reason. But then the counter argument is, man, no, they're going to be in these artificial ones. So there'll be less people in the lineup. So, you know, either way you go, but if you grow the sport, ultimately, these guys are going to want to have a go in the real ocean. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you are growing the sport, you're increasing the number of surfers and it will have a effect on the lineup. Now, uh, but if you have enough of these, there'll be enough of them to, you know, so, so that, there's that aspect. And then there's a part of a competition wave, a real barreling wave, which is too heavy, too dangerous for an amateur. So you don't have the same kind of throughput and you know, you're gonna have accomplished surfers who all wanna give it a go but it's difficult to do that um, for a large number of people at the same time. So I think the the holy grail is gonna be providing both of those experiences in the same wave pool environment where you could actually host a competition, but at the same time, on the day after you could stoke out a thousand people on soft tops in that same pool.
0: Right. So that's the thing. And I'm guessing that the reason for that from a business perspective, right, an investor perspective is that, is it true to assume that the cost per wave is significantly higher when you're going for like a high performance barreling wave versus pushing out like a higher volume of, a, you know, a small like waist high, just rolling, you know, peeling left that everyone can go out and get on on a soft top? Yes. So... Well, from an energy point of view, that is true.
1: So completely uh, clear that if you're just worried about the energy, um, you know, it's, it's uh, related probably to the cube of the wave height and got other parameters in there. But the energy is, is going up with the wave height. And, and, but then the energy use per wave is not really your biggest problem. Sure, it's nice to have a more energy-efficient system. and But usually the reason is that the infrastructure, the capital investment to put in a mechan- mechanical or whatever type of system it is that is capable of producing a wave of that size and power is uh, much more expensive than the mechanism you might need to implement just to create a smaller kind of white-watery uh, three-foot surfable, but not barreling waves. So your initial investment is a lot higher if you're trying to design a, a system that can build, that can create um, these large waves. So that's a bit of a hurdle there. And if you start getting much bigger than the largest ones out there, the costs can get high very quickly.
0: Yeah. And so from your perspective, then, I mean, you, you're obviously implementing the, the technology. Um, are you, do you see a, a commercially viable path where, you know, higher level wave pools, I know people are already really like almost franchising them in certain parts of the world, like where com- there's a commercially viable wave pool that's, that's, you know, quickly profitable from time of build to, uh, you know, cost per wave to however much someone's going to realistically pay to actually go and surf it.
1: Absolutely absolutely it i mean it's proven out there um it's it's there and yeah. uh time will tell how long these pools remain in business uh what the demand is how many more are built but i think uh all of the players in the industry are now kind of honing in on the sort of sweet spot of commercial viability and uh that's going to develop the models uh you know there's, there's a lot to be said about the Organization of the surfers, you know, how do you, you know, how do you sort of uh, uh do this in a safe manner, and, and uh, how can you get the most surfing experiences out of whatever waves you have? Um, but I, I think it's, you know, it's a little bit different from. It's not going to be. I don't think it's going to be like a ski resort where you buy a ticket for the day. It's not. It's going to have to be an hourly kind of experience. It, to to bring the price to that level for sort of the the general population um
0: right which makes sense i mean that's what that, that's what mo, you know most surfers you want to get a session in you know you're yeah you're, you get a session for an, an hour two hours even like going to a skate park i mean that's what it that's what it yeah. so um no i think that's great and it's cool to see that the technology is becoming more scalable and so is that what is that is that what's next on the plate for waveco or for for ks waveco i guess it's now called waveco right
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a WSL wave co I think is official name, but we still keep the name Kelly Slater wave company. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so we're a current project, um, in Palm Springs. Um, you know, that's going forward. Uh, it will be similar, but different to what we have in Lemoore. And, um, I think, uh, from that point of view, the technology is rudimentarily the same. Um, with obviously improvements and, and things, but I think uh, if you look a little bit further down the road, um, especially if the market evolves, I think we'll probably have to be a bit more creative about addressing the broader market, you know, needs, and uh, probably um, introduce a, a new technology to to satisfy that demand.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's amazing. I mean, one day I hope I can, uh, I can get out there and, and uh, yeah. get a session and at the pool, that'd be pretty cool. Um, so I know that we're sort of uh, coming up on, on time here, but I have two more questions for you that I think sort of bring everything together, right? I mean, we've talked about your journey, the, the wave pool, the evolution of wave pools, you know, to becoming more of a, a viable business model, how that influences surfing and I think that that's really one of the more interesting things here is like on this podcast our goal is making the ocean more relevant in many ways to the general public right i mean bringing some light to to technology and and initiatives that are uh, shaping the future of our of our lives and we all do depend on the ocean so my first question sort of less related to the wave pool specifically is you know what do you see from your point of view as, as like why it's so important that we focus on the ocean and and conservation and bringing light to technology that's like, you know, enabling us to preserve it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. I I, I like your, you know, your concept, the 70% is, I mean, it's a great kind of name, you know, and, and um, most of us interact with the coastal ocean, you know, there, you know, some of us go out on boats, but I think the the generally the majority of the population is happy to be on the seashore. You know, it's where the ocean meets the land. It's the most interesting and diverse and dynamic uh, location in the ocean. You know, where you have waves crashing on rocks or rolling up sand. You have all of the coastal ecosystems and and uh, nutrients and, and things around uh, the coastal zone. And this is the area where most of us interact and. That's where you have uh, surfing waves in these areas. And so um, there's a lot to be said about, um, you know, surfers tend to respect the ocean a lot. Um, they're concerned about it. And so maybe by increasing uh, the people who surf, you know, uh, build, building a sport, we might end up with more people who at least will appreciate the ocean a lot more when they, when they are there, um, just having been exposed to a little surfing in an artificial pool and, and, uh, but, but that's, uh, you know, sort of something that we will have to see how that works out and on a sort of side parallel note that some of these wave pools like ours, so we've used our wave pool in collaboration with the Scripps uh, Institute of Oceanography and San Diego UCSD to look at uh, modeling and measuring the effect of wind on waves. So we we've you know we have a controlled environment in the moor where we can generate the same wave again and then monitor the wind and get data that is very difficult to get in the ocean. So there's that synergy in that direction, but it really is um, you know there's, there's 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 things that are important in in uh, you know energy is always a big thing and uh, just for an example of these type of interactions of surf and Energy, You know, there are devices that extract uh, tidal energy or wave energy on the ocean that have been implemented by countries like in Portugal and Scotland and other other countries that are doing this. Um, the US has some as well. And, and uh, so if you place these wave energy capture devices off the shore, you capture the energy of the waves and send it back to land through some undersea cable the power of the city, you have to be aware that uh, by doing that, you're removing the energy from the surf. And now that those waves that were gonna show up on a beach somewhere and people are gonna surf them are not gonna show up. So you, you do have things like this that people are maybe not so aware of that they think, oh great, free energy from the ocean. But now you're taking that energy out of the waves and you're gonna potentially uh, destroy the swell for some surface somewhere, and yeah. so sort it's of, sort of yeah. coupled like that. And the same thing goes to coastal developments where you build a jetty or you you armor a cliff, and and so we have to be very careful about how we interact with this border between the land and the ocean and the coastal areas, especially if we're concerned about things like good surf and, and um, uh, well erosion and other 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 issues that are relevant to the coastal environment. Coastal yeah.
0: I, I mean, I think you you answered my question and then you also answered my next question without me asking it. So that, that's, <laughs> uh, that was great. I mean, I've never actually haven't heard it framed in that same way, um, you know, in terms of the boundaries and the intersections of the different technology that that is really becoming more prevalent with regard to like renewable energy and then how that impacts our coastlines and recreational sports. So uh, I think that's great. And, you know, I think that the most the most relatable thing that you said in that in that description was, and, and I guess to, to backtrack for a second, a lot of people look at the ocean, what just like with this documentary that just came out called Seaspiracy and then ocean and pollution and overfishing, everyone thinks about those issues, right? In in terms of how do we create technology that's going to eliminate pollution in the ocean or stop overfishing, right? But what a lot of people might look at with the wave pool is that it's a fun thing. Like it's this cool thing for professional surfers. You got to pay to, you go and use it. it. It grows a sport. But what I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about right away is that the technology that you're developing and other companies are developing with wave pools to grow the sport ultimately will lead to preserving our ocean because of the exact point you made, where no matter what your political views are or your thoughts are on, um, you know, climate change or, or any other you know naturally occurring effects, if you are a surfer, if your your livelihood uh, or recreation happiness relies on the ocean to any capacity, you're going to want to preserve it and save it. And you you immediately have a a relationship there that runs pretty deep. And so I think that what's cool is that you're not only progressing a sport with wave pools and making a sport more accessible, but in turn you're creating a community of people who actually care about the ocean and care about preserving it and will ultimately um, improve the the accessibility and demand for technology that's going to take plastic out of the ocean or, um, you know, try and stop overfishing and and allow us to continue to do what we love and live, live on the planet. So I think, I think that's sort of the double-edged sword here that a lot of people might not recognize at first that you framed very well. So I, I personally relate to that a lot. Yeah.
1: And that's part of the effort behind the WSL peer program, um, which is, a. You know, has one of the initiatives is the plastics and, and so on. And and I really think um yeah, I think for me personally, my biggest uh issue are the two you mentioned, they're pollution and overfishing. Those are the two that really get me. And and I I I hate it. The overfishing, especially spearfishing in particular. And I, I get it, you know, people have to eat, but there's there's better ways maybe to do that. And uh You know, they don't don't realize that if they overfish, then maybe they'll eat, but their kids won't eat in ten years because there'll be no more fish. Yeah, but it's hard to tell a guy he can't go and get a fish because he's hungry. You know, sure. One very difficult problems, and and they need um, they need uh, smart solutions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that you're you're you know by developing such amazing technology for surfing. I mean, ultimately all these efforts and worlds collide and and it will lead to, you know, progression on the the sport level and also progression on, you know, our efforts to um, preserve and and save the ocean moving forward. So I, I think it's an amazing story. I think it's amazing technology and I cannot wait to see where it goes. And one day, uh adam i hope i can uh, i can get in the wave pool at the ranch and we'll or, get you there
1: we'll get um, you there
0: we'll, we'll get out there and we'll uh we'll have to have a session that'll be a good time well it's uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you thank you so much again for for spending some time with me today it was awesome and one day we'll have to do a follow-up episode in person
1: excellent well nevin thanks again for having me um it's a real pleasure and um all the best uh uh, going forward here.
0: Thanks again to Adam for joining me today on the show to discuss wave pools and how they will continue to host professional surfers and surfing enthusiasts as Waveco expands their operation into multiple locations globally. If you are interested in learning more, you can see photos and videos of the surf ranch at kswaveco.com including the famed video of Kelly Slater viewing and riding the pool's first waves. In addition, we encourage you to check out the WSL Pure program and join World Surf League in their efforts to promote ocean conservation and awareness of the importance of our oceans in our daily lives. As always, we are looking for new ways to bring together those with an interest in our blue planet. Tune in again in two weeks to hear more from inspiring entrepreneurs, technologists and activists who are building the blue vision for the future.